0: This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuller, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. On today's show, I speak with Danielle Fugere, president of As You So. I wanted to talk to Danielle because in the last three years, I've become increasingly concerned about the rising effectiveness of shareholder activism. And as you so has become a leading voice in um, what are increasingly um, passing shareholder resolutions and um, more frequent shareholder resolutions. I like to think of Danielle as a worthy opponent. And really there's no better way to learn and evolve than to engage with those with whom you disagree. Um, When I invited Danielle, I had no idea if this conversation would be a confrontation or a collaboration. As you listen, you'll hear that Danielle will say some things that you know I don't agree with and you might not agree with either, but I didn't take those on. I didn't want to um, bicker about our different views of something like stranded assets. What I wanted to do is learn about what the world looks like from Danielle's perspective and what we can learn from that in order to mitigate our risk and be more successful uh, as businesses creating the energy future. So As ASUSO was founded in 1992 based in San Francisco. They focus on shareholder activism on environmental and social corporate responsibility issues. They also engage directly as you'll hear in our discussion with CEOs, senior management and institutional investors. Uh, Danielle has an accomplished career and environmental advocacy. She became president of As You Sow in 2012. And prior to that, she um, has spent her career focused on environmental health, water protection, um, and she has spearheaded campaigns to promote alter- alternative energies and fuels. Danielle holds a law degree from the University of California at Berkeley, and also did her undergrad work there um, studying political economics. Of course, Cal is across the bay from my alma mater and something of a rival. So go, Cardinal. To learn more about the Energy Thinks podcast and our work at Adamantine, please visit our website at energythinks.com. Now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Danielle Fougere. Danielle, welcome. Thank you for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it.
0: Awesome. So much of my work at Adam and Teen dives into addressing ESG influences and how they're going to impact how our oil and gas companies are organized, what their business operations are going to look like. And one of the most notable influences that has really been rising in relevance in the last few years has been shareholder resolutions. So I just want to jump right in and have you tell us, what is shareholder advocacy? And um, in your work in this space, what are the, what are the goals of, of this kind of activism?
1: Well, according to US law, anyone who owns a share of a company, owned, owns a piece of that company and has the right to ask for information from the company or to raise issues and concerns about its policies and actions. So one way to do that is through dialogue with a company. So actually sitting down and talking through issues. Um, where companies are not responsive, shareholders have the right to file a shareholder proposal with the company. And that proposal is printed on the company's annual proxy to be voted on by shareholders at the company's annual meeting. And so this is a right that the Securities and Exchange Commission has given to shareholders. The goal of shareholder advocacy, at least as we practice it on behalf of investors, is to improve a company's actions actions while improving their value, especially over the long term. Many companies are focused on the short term these days and um, that has impacts on how they relate to the world. So investors are not only concerned about value, but What are the company's impacts on communities, employees, the environment, and how does that impact the company itself? So one increasingly, I think, fundamental question to people with investments, including um, the investors that we represent, and these people might have 401k plans, mutual funds, they might have direct, uh, in in the case of resolution, so need to have direct equity in a company. But their question is, what impact is my investment having on the world that my children or grandchildren will inherit? Are my investments helping to create a world in which we all want to live? And so value of a company goes hand in hand with what's the impact of that company on the world? And I think you've probably dealt with this, but with regard to ESG, Consumers, employees, communities, politicians are all increasingly concerned about the answer to this question. To the questions, what are the impacts of companies to communities, to the environment, to resources? And because there's increasing concern, companies also have to be concerned. And you're probably aware of studies showing that um, most profitable, the most profitable companies. Are generally those that treat their employees well, that reduce waste, that conserve natural resources, that reduce their emissions, and support nearby communities. So we think that um, this goes hand, uh, ESG issues are good for companies, good for value, good for investors.
0: So that's so interesting, Danielle, because right out of the gate, when you said value, I heard values, um, but I, I think you were actually talking about Um, how these impacts of a company ultimately affect their monetary value. Did I, did I get that right? Is, are, you, are these things hand in hand yeah. from your perspective? And so this isn't, I think most of us, including me have thought that, that this kind of advocacy is maybe at the expense of the monetary value of the stock or the profitability of the company. How do you think about those two? You, you cited some studies, but how do you think philosophically about how to balance those two things?
1: You know, I think this is something that we are always talking to companies about. It, you know, in the from the broader perspective, if you create less waste, it will cost the company less to deal with it. If you're um, concerned about resources over the long term and protect those resources, you will have more resources available to you. If you um, treat communities in which your plant operates well then you will have social license to operate. So um, we believe, and, and I think, as I mentioned, studies have shown that value, you know, economic value is highly dependent on how companies act and how they think about these issues. So um, you know, companies cannot change on a dime. Shareholders recognize that. Um, they have to be efficient. They have to um, have policies that work across the board. They have many stakeholders. And so we are very cognizant of, you know, that a company has to transition slowly but, and, and they have to think about value to investors in addition to their impact on the world. So there, there are a lot of moving pieces, but overall, um, we believe that companies that do good will make money and be successful.
0: Mm, So, so interesting. One of the reasons that I sought you out to interview you, Danielle, is because as you so has gone um, from, from my outside observer perspective, from um, uh, a a small player in this to perhaps the most influential dominant player in, in shareholder advocacy, Mm -hmm um this year 2020, so far 72 shareholder resolutions filed 20 in the oil and gas industry. Um, can you talk about what you've what you feel like are, are, are big steps or successes from your perspective engaging with the oil and gas industry um, in your shareholder resolution process? Sure
1: Um Our proposals with oil and gas companies and the work that we've been doing since about 2013 has been focused mainly on climate and the energy transition. So shareholders were asking these companies both how they are affected by climate, how is it going to impact them physically, how is it going to impact regulations that govern how they operate? And then an equally important question to shareholders is, how are they reducing their impact on climate because as shareholders and certainly institutional investors are both looking at the long-term and they've got fiduciary duties to beneficiaries and they hold across the economy. So climate change not only has an impact to a company and a company has to prepare for that and be able to make money in a world that's changing, but Shareholders are also concerned about what impact that company is having on the climate because um, you know, the predictions for global GDP in a world that's impacted by fires and storms and um, supply chains that are cut off and a lack of agriculture, lack of water, um, that's not good for business. And so we care broadly how companies are impacting climate. So with oil and gas companies, we're asking them, Are they preparing for a future that a low carbon energy market? Are they recognizing the global transformation that is occurring in laws and policies? These are global commodities, So it doesn't matter what the US does in terms of policy is just one component. They also have to sell into a world that is taking more stringent action on climate change. So are they planning realistically for declining demand Will their business models optimize for this transformation? Or are they doubling down to fight climate policies? Will their investments be stranded? Not, not only in the long term, but we're seeing stranding occurring now. Tar sands are one example where we've seen tremendous write-offs um, from oil and, by oil and gas companies. And we just saw Exxon taken off the Dow Jones Index when 10 years earlier, it dominated the index. And so we are asking oil and gas companies to talk to us about how they're thinking about their business model, how they're seeing the transformation. Are they taking actions or are they doubling down their capital expenditures to continue producing oil and gas? Those are the kinds of questions. And and we started off the, the first ask of oil and gas companies were for them to do a climate risk assessment. And that started the conversation. We are now asking oil and gas companies to tell us how they're aligning their business with the demands of the Paris Agreement and and the recognition globally that the world needs to get to net zero. So how are they making that transformation? If they are, um, what are they investing in? Are they they, um, moving toward the opportunities that are presented by this? So those are the kinds of questions we have been asking. And, and um, we've been working with companies to to both get information and to be very clear that we want to invest in companies that are transitioning.
0: Danielle, you, you brought up so many interesting things there, and I'll, I'll just pick one to, to uh, pursue follow-up with. For about 18 months at Adamantine, we've been telling um, smaller publicly traded oil and gas companies, whether they be pipelines or EMP companies or even utilities with a gas portfolio, that if they've never seen a climate-related shareholder resolution, they should be preparing to have one. So for those companies that haven't had one yet, but might see one in the future, can you talk a little bit about how the process works? You're, you're not standing outside with signs, outside these companies, you're filing a shareholder resolution. And what does it look like in terms of a conversation or a battle or a negotiation? Um, How how does it work uh, ideally? And maybe how does it work pragmatically from your perspective?
1: Sure, so we, Lisa as you so, will always endeavor to talk with a company first so that we have the opportunity to share our concerns, to hear from the company, to understand where the company is going. Um, And in most cases, we will file a proposal where we see a company has very little disclosure, or if they aren't, you know, uh, let's say they haven't set climate targets, they're not in any way demonstrating movement toward transitioning. So we will identify companies and then we will send them a, a letter and ask to meet with them. We often will hold one, two, sometimes three conversations, depending on um, what particular ask we might have of a company. So if it's about disclosures, um, you know, we usually have an initial conversation. They'll take the, the issues back. They'll discuss them internally. Often they'll meet with their boards. Um, and then they will come back and respond to us about what they might be able to do or what they, you know, whether they'll take some action or not, and we'll have a discussion about that. So generally, we talk with companies where we're unable to see eye-to-eye eye or a company may be unwilling to increase disclosures or um, change its business models. And, and certainly, we started out with, we usually start out with disclosures and then move toward how are they responding in terms of their business model. Um, so then if we don't see eye to eye, we will file a shareholder proposal. At that point, they'll be able to review it, and um, we often have another discussion after that. The company might challenge it at the SEC, and we will, you know, put our briefs in and have, a, have that conversation in front of the SEC. If the SEC allows the company to omit, then we're done. If the SEC does not allow them to omit it, it goes on their proxy, and then a vote will occur at their annual general meeting.
0: So Danielle, um, yeah, totally. Maybe a tricky question, so you can take it in any direction you want. But what's a bigger win from as your from as you so's perspective, or or from your perspective as a as a leader and an advocate in this space? Is it when you are able to remove a proposal because you're in dialogue or have an agreement with the company or is it when you win a vote? You've been winning more and more votes over the years, but you've also, I've also been saying more and more withdrawals for either dialogue or some kind of agreement. What does success look like from your perspective?
1: We will always attempt to withdraw the proposal in exchange for an agreement on what steps the company will take. Um, these issues are very big. And so no company will will say, yes, okay, <laughs> we hear investors. Tomorrow we'll we'll, you know, here's <laughs> we'll give you everything that you want. But what we want to see is progress. We want to see an open discussion and dialogue. We want to understand where the company is going and and you know forward steps. Is what investors seek. So withdrawals are the win, the big win, because that usually because that means action. Um, votes are important. So where a company is unwilling to take action, a vote. If you even get a 20% vote, you know one in five investors or a 25% vote, one in four investors are saying to the company, we are concerned about your direction. We would like more information, or we would like you to take the action. You haven't said. Climate targets, and we would like you to do so. So it's a, a vote is a strong signal to companies that shareholders are concerned about them and what they're doing. And remember, this is um, you know we companies vie for investor support, right? And mm-hmm. so oftentimes they do need some they do need investors to continue to, to um, invest in them. And so with oil and gas companies now, we're starting to see that European oil and gas companies are transitioning at, at rates that are much, um, they're talking about their Paris goals and their business plans. They're talking about what they're doing and their investments in clean energy and acknowledging that write-offs may have to occur or, um, you know, directional changes. That. That all is, you know, that is what investors want to see. U.S. oil and gas companies, we're seeing much less action mm-hmm. from them. And so um, I think you just, I don't know if you were aware of that announcement recently by Storebrand, which is Norway's largest private asset manager, mm-hmm. but they've just divested from Exxon, Chevron, and a, a significant number of companies because those companies weren't taking climate change seriously and, and because they were lobbying against climate policy mm-hmm. so we, so there um, you know it's this whole range I, I think I've uh, like <laughs> gotten a little away from your question, but I all of this plays into it so we want to see action we will always withdraw a vote sends a signal to a company it also educates shareholders it educates boards it educates management so um, votes themselves are important. We think it's a tool that allows an interaction between investors and companies that can be really important because companies are often, you know, just going forward doing what they do, and that outside perspective often can be very helpful. And because investors are talking to many companies, um, they also have a broader view of sort of the industry and where it's going. And you know, is a company uh, behind or in front of? other
0: companies so that's so interesting and surprising to me Danielle and so I'm, I'm glad that I asked the question that the the win is progress not the, the win of a vote um, which changes uh, I think the way one want, want uh, an oil and gas leader can think about uh, shareholder activism um, as it, it sounds like it could be it can be a, an engagement a, a, a partnership um, Maybe, but let me ask you, do you, do mm-hmm. you, in your organization sometimes change your mind through these, through these interactions? Do you come away with a different perspective or knowledge or maybe a softening of some of your perspectives?
1: Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's why you call, you know, we call it a dialogue mm-hmm. because we, um, you know, we aren't in inside the company we may or may not know what constraints a company is facing. Um, certainly when we were doing work with fracking companies um, and we were asking for disclosures, we would meet with companies. And in instances where we were asking for something that perhaps didn't make sense from a company perspective or there might be a different way to frame it. So it's we are learning, at the same time, I think that companies are learning. And so that is that is the ideal of a dialogue where we are learning from each other and continuing to talk and move forward some of these ideas and issues.
0: That's a powerful response. I, I really appreciate that. Um, let me pivot a little bit to talk about um, this macro shift underway that you're involved with, which is... Um, that the financial world that banks and large investors are going to be measuring uh, emissions of their portfolios or reporting emissions of their portfolios. Um, I just wanted to get your perspective on the role of financial institutions in this, in changing company behavior, influencing company behavior. How important is it? Um, And where do you think it's going?
1: This this is a critically important issue, and I'm glad that you brought up the fact that not only are banks starting to look at what is their contribution to climate change, we we call that finance emissions. So where are they funding projects or companies that are creating climate change? And so just as a company has a carbon footprint, financial institutions have a footprint in the sense of what what are their financed emissions. Mm.
0: Um,
1: but just as we look to companies for change, large institutional investors also are being asked to report what are they investing in, what are the emissions associated with those investments, and are they reducing their investments in companies that are not taking action so Um, That climate footprint is not not just an, an issue about companies' climate footprints. Financial institutions are critical to the climate equation because it's very difficult to ask companies to change and to innovate when there's a tremendous amount of money on the table that would finance business as usual. And so I think the world's biggest banks, for instance, have put almost $3 trillion into fossil fuel industries since the 2015 Paris Agreement. And that means that you know, every piece of infrastructure, every project, it might have a lifespan of 15 to 30 years.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so that means the potential for stranded assets, but it's also sort of funding business as usual. And when we started talking with banks, because we have been working with banks to um, measure and disclose their finance emissions, and and then we will ask them to set targets to reduce those. So can they move money from um, climate activities or activities that are harmful to the climate and into the innovation and um, financing clean energy or financing efficiency in buildings or, you know, moving buildings away from harm's way and floodplains, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. there's a whole range of actions that banks take or or financial institutions take when they're investing in companies that might be creating climate change. So, um, and when we first started talking with, with the large US banks, their perspective was that it was the company's responsibility to to make change that it was the client their clients had to take the action but i think there has been a fundamental recognition that all parties have responsibility and everybody has to take action at the same time
0: yes it's so interesting and any um oil and gas leader who's reflecting on this um listening to this podcast We'll probably be thinking about this as a double financial whammy, in the sense that accountability to shareholders is changing; those expectations are changing, um, and then you add in um, lenders. The the way that that they're thinking about this and taking responsibility uh, really makes, I think, the case that every oil and gas leader will have to have be able to articulate a coherent climate. Strategy, um, and but but you're just making me feel more strongly and more urgent about about that. Um, Danielle, tell us what's coming next. So for oil and gas companies that are watching shareholder resolutions, they're seeing the ones filed this year, for example, about. Um, uh, support, uh, disclosing health risks and uh, climate risk areas, for example. What's coming next? What should, to get ahead of this, what should oil and gas companies be preparing for in their strategies?
1: I think um, that, that they have to understand um, that their current profit centers may be in oil and gas, but the future is not. And so those oil and gas companies that are paying attention to where the energy market is going and what the future opportunities are, they will be successful. And those companies that don't change will face obsolescence. And we know that customers adapt relatively quickly to new technologies. It's already happening in developing nations, which have shown that they can grow GDP without increasing energy use. And so shareholders will consistently and more adamantly be looking to oil and gas companies to change up their business model or simply to reduce their capex and you know we've seen strategies of shrink to grow whatever it is shareholders are looking for progress and and a business plan that makes sense in a world that's driven by the imperative to grapple with climate change quickly. Mm. So I, 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 you know, I, I think what I would underscore is the need for action quickly. Shareholders mm. have been working on the issue. Mm-hmm. They've given companies time, but the imperative is, is, is becoming action now. Who is taking action now? And, mm-hmm. you know, who is not? Because mm-hmm. that will, as, as we talked about a moment ago, funding is going to be linked to that. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I, I guess that is the future I would see. So it's not so much in what this or that, but where are companies heading and how quickly.
0: So Daniel, if, if a company is um, wanting to get ahead of this and they are thinking about their strategy, do you recommend that they proactively reach out to their investors on this topic or I Some would argue that would we'll be looking for trouble, and um, although I think it might be obvious what you would say, could you make a case for why oil and gas uh, executives and boards should start the climate conversation with their investors if their investors haven't brought it to them first?
1: Um, I would be
0: <laughs>
1: yes, I mean, I think that some of the smaller companies probably had less interaction with shareholders, but um, reaching out, I, I think that there is no secret what investors want. I think those companies that are proactive that talk to their shareholders, that can talk about where they're heading, what their plans are, and letting shareholders know that. Um, in essence, they are um, avoiding what might be more contra- you know controversy in the future They're avoiding being um, put into the laggard category Mm -hmm. because I think that that is important publicly and in terms of, you know, from a policy perspective, from a consumer perspective, um, even banks, you know, reputation matters. And so they're being proactive makes a lot of sense in in this day and age and ensuring investors Mm -hmm. that you're doing the right thing. And that you know, because investors are making choices every day about what companies they're going to invest in, and so yeah, keeping, that's
0: interesting. I hadn't thought about it in exact that way, exactly that way. Which is that choosing to to stay silent on this topic um, in a world of shrinking capital for the oil and gas industry might mean that you you're found you found yourself in the unfunded laggards category. So I hadn't really thought mm-hmm. of it like that. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting. Interesting different way of framing it rather than looking for trouble, it's making sure you stay on, uh, stay in in a relevant um, positioning for future funding. Absolutely, it does make a difference. Well, Danielle, you've been generous um, with your time and giving us your perspective. I wanted to just ask you a few quick questions so we can get to know you as a person living through a pandemic right now. So um, can you tell us how are you and yours faring during the pandemic? How's it going?
1: It's, you know, none of us like this, but I think what we're trying to do is find value in the downtime. Um, We are able to conduct business, thankfully, from the safety of our homes, And I know that we're all grateful that we don't have to go out into, you know, the world and and do the important work of keeping the world going in the sense of, you know, driving buses and Mm -hmm. being healthcare workers. So um, great gratitude to all of those people that are doing that. But um, Mm -hmm. I think we are faring pretty well, and we are working with companies from the phone And we're using Zoom, so it it has um, been fine from that perspective.
0: Is there anything you did differently or learned in the pandemic that you're going to try to take forward in your life?
1: I think I mentioned this before, slowing down has been important. I feel that COVID has um, underscored for hopefully people and policymakers to the need to grapple with science or issues that are you know when you see something on the horizon dealing with it and you know getting doing the research necessary and taking the action before it gets out of hand is to me one of the significant things that that we have learned or that was underscored by COVID you've got to pay attention and the quicker you act the better off you will be. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, U S is a little bit of a laggard in that mm-hmm. perspective, which is so unfortunate in terms of the economy, life loss. Um, but it does sort of, it does highlight the need to pay mm-hmm. attention to these issues.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, just to end on an optimistic note, what um, what are you most excited and looking forward to personally and professionally right now? I
1: am, let's see, I I. am, we, 2020 has been a crazy year. I am optimistic that we, you know, we're grappling as a nation with very big and consequential issues we're, we're. you know, the nature of our democracy and the strength of our democracy. So that gives me hope that, yeah. you know, that we can come together and talk and, you know, change things up where we need to. So, so that's hopeful. And certainly from a private, uh, personal perspective, looking forward to getting back to normal in terms of our everyday life. I would love to go out and hug a bunch of people and mm-hmm. <laughs> talk to people. And I think we're heading in that direction. So so that's hopeful too. And, mm. you know, I was also, <laughs> as I sat on my porch listening to birds, they were louder <laughs> when <laughs> nobody was driving. So that, this was, um, I was glad to to see that, you know, the birds are still out there in the forest and the world is a beautiful place. So I, I'm, I'm an optimistic person and I'm glad to see movement in the world.
0: Mm, Thanks for that. Thanks so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast, Danielle. It's been really interesting and I'm sure um, we have a lot to reflect on from your thoughts. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. That's our episode for today. Thanks to Danielle for taking time to share her insights with us. I'd like to hear your reaction to this conversation. So please visit our website at energythinks.com backslash podcast and let me know. You can subscribe to Energy Thinks on iTunes, Spotify, and the other major podcast platforms. If you like what you're hearing, please stop right now and give us a rating. It is very useful. Thanks for listening to the Energy Thinks podcast. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler. wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.